I hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6. And as you turn there, we're going to start by asking you to consider how do you think about the heart of Jesus towards people? Say it as a question. What is the heart of Jesus towards people? Which is a way of saying, how does Jesus look at people? How does Jesus think about us, about the world? And I recognize this is a complex question, not a question that can be or should be answered simply, and any answer we give probably requires some nuance. But at the same time, I think we can agree it's an important question. What is the heart of Jesus towards people? It's important to consider this for a couple of reasons. One, because we need to know, don't we, as, as Christ followers, shouldn't we desire to know what Jesus thinks of us? What is Christ's heart towards you? What does he want for you? What does he want from you? It's a weighty question to consider. It's also important because not only should we want to know what Christ is thinking about us, but as those who have been called to follow him and to reflect him to the world, shouldn't we want to know what moves the heart of Christ? Because what, if we're to be like him, then what moves the heart of Christ should be what moves our heart. So we should be striving to see the world and the people around us through his eyes and through his heart. And the reason I bring this up is because I think our text this morning in Mark chapter 6 is especially helpful in reminding us of the heart of Christ, of the way he thinks and feels towards us and towards the world. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, then you'll remember the focus in the first part of chapter 6. Up to this point in chapter 6, the focus has been on the call to discipleship and the cost of discipleship. So we'll go back a couple of weeks. Here's your review to get us a running start into where we are in the scriptures this morning. Remember the sending out of the 12. Jesus calls them apostles, the sent ones. He sends them out to go as his emissaries, his ambassadors, his missionaries. And as he sends them, he gives them authority to not only proclaim the gospel, but also to proclaim miracles or to perform miracles that would validate the message that they're preaching. So they're sent out. But then in the, the way Mark writes the, 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 the narrative, right on the heels of the sending of the 12, we have the death of John the Baptist. So that's where we were last week. We considered this faithful and important herald of Christ who proclaimed with boldness the message of repentance and what did it lead to? But the loss of his head. John was beheaded ultimately because of the message he proclaimed. A powerful story and I want to mention this again because I think it's so helpful. We considered last week how this story, this true account of the death of John, where it's placed in this chapter. Because we've got the sending of the 12, and in verse 13, if you have your Bibles open, you can look back at verse 13. We've got the sending out of the 12. And then Mark makes what seems to be in a bit of an abrupt transition into the, the story of the death of John the Baptist. 
And then as we come to verse 30, which is the first verse of our passage for this morning, we see the 12 returning. So we've got the sending of the 12, a story of someone who went out and proclaimed the message and died because of it, and then the closed parentheses, right, as the disciples return. And what we talked about last week is what Mark is showing us through the structure of this chapter is that we are called to go, we are sent out, but as we go, we should know this. It may cost us everything. And so this is all through this chapter, the cost of discipleship, the call of Jesus to follow him, and the expectation of what it may cost. As we hear that, we may be inclined to start thinking of the Christian life, of what we've been called to. We may be inclined to start thinking of it as just a grind. It's just this burden that we just have to bear, and we just need to push through and just grit our teeth as we follow Christ. And it's true that we have a high and a costly calling that may bring us pain. But we have the reminder this morning in our text that while there is a high call and cost to discipleship, we're also called into fellowship with a caring and compassionate shepherd. And so we hold these things together. That we've been called to come and die. But we walk this road within the scope of a relationship with one who has called us his and who cares for us and loves us. And as we're going to consider, we've already considered this morning, we'll consider again as our good shepherd. Called into a relationship with the God who is present, whose heart is kind and full of compassion. Isn't it interesting to consider that both those things are true? Is the call of following Jesus a hard calling? You should answer yes, because it is. Jesus said himself, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The words of Christ. But we also recognize that the one who calls us, the one who issues that command, has a heart of care and compassion towards us. And so this morning, as we continue the, this chapter, we're going to wrestle with these two things a little bit. What does it mean to be called to come and die and to walk that road being led by a kind and caring shepherd. Let me just say, this is, here's, here's a parenthesis. I am so thankful for the, the, the chance to, the way the Bible's given to us, that we can walk through it verse by verse. Because, you know, if it was up to me, if I was just picking the topics every week, I may be inclined to talk a lot about the cost of discipleship and very little about the heart of Christ. Or, Depending on my mood, the season, I may be really inclined to talk a lot about the heart of Christ and never talk about the cost of discipleship. But aren't you glad that as we work through Mark chapter 6, God has perfectly balanced these things? So we see both the cost and the privilege. A beautiful balance. Gives you an idea of where we're headed. And I'll tell you, if you're looking at your Bible right now, you're probably looking at a heading that says the feeding of the 5,000, which is what, honestly, I thought we were going to talk about this morning. 
But I started working through it, and I realized there's no, we'll be here till three o'clock before I try to take us all the way to verse 44, and we will um, no, like, no, no doubt miss part of what God has for us here. So this is part one. At the end, just, you can see it'll, to be continued, okay? This is the compassionate shepherd part one. But as we come together next week, we're going to want to hang on to that because it really informs the miracle that follows, okay? This morning, we're going to consider the heart of Christ. So only four verses, but a beautiful glimpse into the heart of our Lord. And so I'll invite you to, to take your Bible and follow along as I read. Starting in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. Hear the word of God. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And they went ashore, they saw a great crowd. And Jesus had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. We ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. You know, one of the things we learn as we walk through the scriptures and through books of the Bible together is the importance of context. And I hope you recognize that there's a reason we should be serious about context, not only because it keeps us from misapplying the scriptures, but sometimes we see even more in a text because of the context, which is what we were just considering. This chapter in particular is a great, importance, a great example of that, how these events work together. So we come and we see now the return of the disciples. And we recognize they were sent out earlier in the chapter, and now they are back from their first missionary journey. And we aren't told, nowhere in any of the four Gospels, we aren't told how long they were gone. Was this months? Was it weeks? Was it days? We don't, we don't know. But no doubt they have come back with stories to tell. Because so we read in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and all that they had taught. And think about all that they had done. They had been sent out with authority to do miracles. If, we, if you look back to verse 12, we're told they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They taught. They cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And now they're coming back. They had never done these things before, right? They're coming back and they're telling Jesus of all they had done and all they had taught. They had preached repentance and faith. They had preached the kingdom of God and they had done things that validated their message. And I want you to think about that journey, about what they experienced. We've talked over the past couple of weeks that, that not all who hear the good news respond to the good news. They don't all see it as good news. And what's been clear the past two weeks is that as the disciples have gone out, there was probably reasons for both praise and disappointment. Praise for the work that God had done and the places where the word had been received and heard, and probably stories of hard places, and those who had refused to hear, 
Remember, they were told that if someone will not hear you, will not listen to you, then shake off the dust from your clothes and, and move on. And no doubt as they come back, this is not a complete praise report, but also you were right. Not all hear and believe. If you've been a Christian for long, I know many of you have, if you've been involved in the work of ministry, you know that both of these are ever-present realities. I'd say almost every week without exception, I could share with you stories of praise within our church of those who I've spoken with or been around who are responding in faith to the truth and are growing their love and service of Christ. Almost every week I could tell you and you know, I won't gossip, but I could, there's someone in our church every week who I can say, this person is hearing the truth and they're responding and it's not always easy, but they're being faithful. But almost every week without exception, I could tell you of another person who's refusing to hear. Someone who's rejecting the truth and in most cases it's clear where their refusal to listen will lead them. And soul crushing. Refusal to hear. And I want you to recognize something I think you all know already. That when we're involved with the work of Christ, it's a roller coaster, isn't it? Disappointments filled with, followed by joy. Joy and sorrow, sorrow and joy. What are you talking about? I'm talking about is what the disciples must have been expressing as they came back. Great victories and brutal rejections. With that in mind, I want you to consider what Jesus does next. As they come back and halfway excited and halfway defeated, here's how Jesus responds to their reports of all that they had done and all that they taught. We see in verse 30, excuse me, 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come and rest. This is the response of Jesus to the disciples. And they've told all that they've done. And I, want to, I don't want to make too much of this. This isn't the main point of the text. But I do think it gives us a good glimpse into the heart of Jesus. What we see here is not only is Jesus focused on the mission that he gave the disciples to do, but he's focused on the disciples themselves. Do you see that? He has sent them and they've come back and maybe they're energized to keep going or maybe they're so discouraged they want to quit. But to all of them, he says, let's rest a while. We see the care and concern of Jesus for his friends. To be sure, the calling of Christ is high and costly. And Jesus called these men to give up everything, right? Leave father and mother and sister and daughter. Walk, be willing to leave it all. Jesus said that. And now he says to those who, have been, who are committed to his service, come and rest. He calls them to get away, to go to a desolate, quiet place. I think it's also worth noting that he doesn't wait until everything stops for this time of rest. You see that in verse 31? It says that they're there and there are many coming and going and they don't even have leisure to eat. Of course there's people coming and going. Do you remember the reaction when there was one miracle worker? And now there's 13 of them. 
13 people who have this authority to cast out demons and to heal. And we're told that there are just people coming and going. As soon as one group leaves, another group arrives. And they don't even have time to eat. Have you ever been so mission-focused? As soon as there's a break, we'll rest. We see that Jesus doesn't wait for the break in the crowd. He says to his disciples, come away. Let's rest. He recognizes the needs of his disciples. In the midst of it all, he pulls them away, which reminds us of this. Going back to Hebrews where we started this morning, that Jesus knows our limits and he knows our weaknesses. So one of the things I love to think about is the incarnation, that Jesus took on flesh and lived among us, which means not only does he know everything because he's God, but he knows our condition because he took on flesh and he lived it. He lived as a man, so he personally knows what it feels like to be tired. He knows the toll and the exhaustion of ministry. And he doesn't just know about it because he's God, but he knows about it because he's experienced it. He took on flesh. Think Philippians 2. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, 15. He knows our weakness and he knows our need for rest. And what, I, what I'm trying to just point you towards here is the care of God for his people. We're going to see as we keep reading. We see here at the, at the beginning something that we may be inclined to move past quickly. That not only does Jesus call us to count the cost and to carry our cross, but he's mindful of our need for rest. I was tempted at this point to just take a long rabbit trail into what the Bible says about the promise of rest. It's everywhere. Go this week, read Hebrews 3 and 4 about the promise of eternal rest. This is what Jesus is leading us towards, rest. And at the same time, we don't have to wait till eternity, but we read in Matthew 11, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I said I wasn't gonna go on the rabbit trail, right? We won't. But this is a reoccurring theme in the scriptures, this idea of rest. And we see Jesus care for his people. Glimpse into the heart of Christ. He knows our limits. He knows our needs. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. And while we do have the call to come and die, we also have a Savior who cares for our needs. So what do they do? Let's get back to the story. What are they doing? He says, let's go and rest. And so they get in a boat and we're told that they, they're sailing to a desolate place. We've seen them on the Sea of Galilee several times up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, usually going across. But at this point, it seems based on the story that they're not going across, but they're going along the shore. So instead of taking a road and walking to a desolate place, they get in a boat and it's easier to sail to this desolate place. But notice what happens in verse 33. Many people saw them going and recognized them. And so they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So picture this. Here's the boat going out, not across the sea, but along the shore. There they go. We'll just hike it. We'll just follow them to wherever they're going. And we're told that they got there before them. You picture that? People running along the shore. And when that boat hits land, the crowd is already there. And not just a few people who like to run. Remember, this leads up to the feeding of how many? 5,000 plus women and children. 
It's a big group of people. All gathered in a desolate place. As I hit the shore, there's no doubt this is not going to be a restful retreat. Crowds are there, and there's no getting away from them. If we stopped right here, I would encourage you to think about how Jesus could respond. Before we see how he does respond, consider how he does, or he could respond, and maybe think about how you would respond. Probably different than Jesus, right? We're going to get away. We're going to rest. And you get there and realize there's no rest to be had. How do you respond when things don't go the way you planned? How do you respond with interruptions? How do you respond to the people who get in the way of your plans? Think about the situation. There's different ways Jesus could have responded. And since he's perfect, he could have done it without sin. He could have been righteously angry and told the crowd how much he had done for them. I have given to you and I've given to you, but this is my time. He could have changed courses. He could have told Peter, let's take the boat across. We're not going to find peace here. Let's go somewhere where we can. We have served them well. We have loved them fully. This is our time. Jesus could have done whatever he pleased and been justified in it. But what we see is that Jesus is not resentful of the crowd. He's not angered by them. We don't even have a hint of annoyance. He could have ignored them or sent them away, but he doesn't. Verse 34. When Jesus saw, excuse me, when Jesus went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. No resentment, no frustration, not even a word of rebuke or correction. Mark records that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. It's a strong word in the original language. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. It's a feeling of profound empathy or pity from the deepest part of a person. Because it's not used often, but Jesus uses it Uh, When he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, you remember the story Jesus told of a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho? Along the way, he's beaten, robbed, and left for dead. As the story goes, there's people who pass by who we would expect to stop and render aid, but who don't. But then comes the least likely person in our minds A Samaritan, a person from a despised people group. And yet we're told that when he saw the man beaten, robbed, and left for dead, he had compassion on him. It's the same word. He was moved, he felt pity. And it was a feeling that led to action. So Luke says in chapter 10, verse 34, that the Samaritan went to him, bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine, He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This is compassion. A feeling of deep, profound empathy and pity that moves someone to action. It's the sense that there's something wrong that needs to be made right. It's a heart of love and kindness towards someone in need. It's how the Samaritan responded. And this is how Mark says Jesus responded to this crowd. 
And it's, it's great to think Jesus loves crowds. But can, you just, can we live in our flesh for a minute and think about how he could have been tempted to feel when he's going away to give his disciples who have served him well rest and he shows up and this crowd is still there? And only thinking of themselves, we read in John 6 that by the next day, most of this crowd would have been gone and forgotten. They would have forgotten Jesus and moved on. He knew how ultimately they would respond to him. He knew that ultimately they would not believe. But nevertheless, we're told that when he saw them, he has compassion. So what was it about this crowd that drew out compassion from the heart of Christ? Verse 34 again. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If you know the Bible, you know this is a common metaphor. We've, we've read several of the passages already together this morning. People compared to sheep, and it's not a compliment. It's a reminder of our lack of self-sufficiency. Because sheep are dumb. And sheep require a lot of attention. For sheep to eat, they need someone to lead them to food. For sheep to drink, they need someone to take them to water. For sheep to rest, they need someone to make them feel safe. For sheep to survive, they need someone to protect them. In order for a sheep to have any real chance, they need a shepherd. They need a provider, a protector, a guide. What we see in our text is that Jesus looks at this crowd and what he sees are sheep who don't have a shepherd. People wandering and lost. People who left to themselves will not survive. He sees people looking for something that they can never find on their own. A powerful metaphor. But we miss some of the punch if we think that this originated with Jesus. Jesus is quoting a phrase that's used no less than three times in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a couple of them. First, we'll go to Numbers chapter 27. To give you some context, this is during the time when the people of God are wandering in the wilderness. Moses has been their leader. But as they're almost to the promised land, God comes to Moses. Do you remember what God tells Moses? It's the end of the road, friend. Because of your disobedience, you're not going into the promised land. You'll die on this side of the river. It's a conversation between Moses and God, and we read in Numbers 27, starting in verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord God, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, and who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. What's Moses saying? There's these people in the wilderness. We've been wandering. I understand I can no longer lead them, but you must not leave them without a shepherd. Don't let your people be like a sheep without a shepherd. So we we see that he, he recognizes the people need someone to guide them. And if we go down to verse 18, we see the response of God. He said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, 
Make him stand up before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. So the request of Moses that the people not be without a shepherd, God gives them Joshua. And we'll take the short road, but let me remind you that you may already know this, that in many ways, Joshua is a type of Christ. In fact, the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, when translated into the Greek, is the same word, that Greek word, when translated to English, it's the same word of Jesus. So often this Joshua and Jesus are used interchangeably. That's the short version of that, okay? <laughs> What's the point? The point is that the people needed a shepherd. God appointed Joshua to lead them into the promised land, to be that shepherd that would guide them. Moses knew the people needed a shepherd. They needed someone to lead them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And now Jesus has come as the perfect shepherd of the people of God who will lead us into perfect rest. In Mark, when Jesus sees this crowd, we're told he has compassion. Why? They need a shepherd. They need someone to lead them out of the wilderness and into rest. They are wandering and lost. Let me show you one other one. Ezekiel 34. We've, once again, we've already read part of it. Your homework, we've already mentioned Hebrews 3 and 4. Add Ezekiel 34 to your reading list for the week, okay? Start in verse 1. The Lord came to me, Ezekiel said, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with the force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, and none to search or seek for them. So we see the problem. The people of God, who for all practical purposes are sheep without a shepherd, and their leaders have failed them. So we skip down to verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been, scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, lost in the dark. God says, I will be their shepherd. I will find them. But what does that look like? What does it look like for God to seek and to find his sheep? This is cool. Enter into my joy if you're not there, but on your own, right? Verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Did you catch what he said? 
I'm going to set a shepherd over my people. Who is that? Well, it's David. But wait, if I'm remembering correctly, doesn't Ezekiel come after David's dead? You're right. Who's he speaking of? The son of David, the ultimate and true David, the one who will sit on the throne of David, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has been appointed as the shepherd of the sheep. The people of God, sheep without a shepherd. God says, I will send a shepherd. And according to John 10, Jesus is the one, the good shepherd who knows his sheep and the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, does this give some context to what we read in Mark? When Jesus looks at this crowd of people and he says, they're like sheep who don't have a shepherd. And in his mind, he hears the Old Testament playing. They're sheep without a shepherd, but God has said, I will send a shepherd. And Jesus looks over the crowd. He knows who he is. He knows who they are. We're told he has compassion. His heart is moved because he is setting his eyes physically on a mass of people who are literally lost in the wilderness. Mark uses that phrase three times, a desolate place. And we see all these people go out into the wilderness, into a desolate place. And this is where Jesus sees them, sheep in the wilderness. And he recognizes their need for a shepherd. He has compassion on them. This is why he came, to be a shepherd of lost sheep. Here he demonstrates that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He looks on the lost sheep and in compassion desires to meet their needs. So what does he do? He has compassion, but doesn't compassion need some action? What does this compassion move him to do? Verse 34. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus began to teach them many things. How does Jesus lead lost sheep? How does he provide for them? How does he guide them? Mark says he taught them. Luke says he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Now, he does heal some of them. We see later. We'll see next week that he feeds them. But what Jesus does, the way he shows compassion, is he tells them what it looks like to truly enter the fold of the good shepherd. He tells them of the kingdom of God. He teaches them of the inbreaking of the rule and reign of God. And of course, the message that the only way to be a true sheep of the true shepherd is to repent and believe. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message that he had gone out proclaiming and no doubt the message he proclaimed to this crowd. And we think about this crowd, they'd come for all kinds of reasons. They didn't see themselves mostly as sheep without a shepherd. No. They were coming to someone who could heal them or maybe they could see a miracle. Some came out of intrigue and some out of sincere faith. I've already mentioned that in the Gospel of John, we see by the next day, most of them have left and Jesus said all they wanted was bread. But nevertheless, we see the heart of Christ on display. He looks at a mass of people all looking for something and his heart was moved with compassion. 
And despite his desire to get away and provide rest for his friends, he stopped and spent the rest of the day teaching what they must do to be saved. I appreciate the way John Calvin spoke of this scene. He said, so strongly was Jesus moved by this feeling of compassion that though in common with his disciples, he was fatigued and almost worn out by uninterrupted toil, he did not spare himself. He endeavored to obtain some relaxation for him and for his disciples. But when urgent duty called to additional labor, he willingly laid aside his private considerations and devoted himself to the multitudes. It's a reminder to us of the heart of Jesus, the compassionate shepherd who's come to seek and to save the lost. When he saw a mass of people, some of who would believe and some who would not, he had compassion on them. When he saw people without direction, without purpose, wandering in the wilderness, he had pity on them. So we'll go back to where we started. What was the opening question? What is the heart of Jesus towards people? It's a big question with complex answer. <laughs> Let's just be honest. We can go to lots of passages and develop a view of the heart of Christ. But what we see here so clearly is that at the heart of Jesus is moved for the lost. He has compassion for them. The heart of Jesus recognizes sheep without a shepherd. And we've seen this throughout the chapter. Why did Jesus go to Nazareth to a place where he knew he'd be rejected? Because he had a heart of compassion for sheep without a shepherd. Why did Jesus send out the 12 to go into all the region knowing that there would be some towns where they'd have to shake the dust off their clothes? Because he had a heart of compassion for sheep without a shepherd. And what drives his response to a crowd that ultimately will walk away from him. His heart of compassion for sheep without a shepherd. So we've come to this point, and this is, the, this is the point where I have to ask you the question you know is coming. How do you think about the mass of people all around you? If we are to have the heart of Christ, and we've determined that the heart of Christ is compassion for a lost and dying world, how do you think about the people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, the other parents that you're sitting with when your kids play sports? The question is, do we have the heart of Jesus? Does our heart move with compassion for those who are lost? Do we see them as sheep who need a shepherd and recognize that we have the message through which they can be brought into the fold? It's important for us to see the heart of Jesus for the lost and strive to have the same kind of heart. But I also want us to see that for those who have entered into the fold of the sheep, we've been brought into the care of the good shepherd. We saw earlier the way Jesus cared for his disciples, his desire to give them rest. It's clear throughout the shepherds that God has come not only to save us from our sins, but to be our good shepherd. To guide us, to protect us, to provide for us. So we read together earlier, and I'll read it again. 
thinking of Jesus, what it means to be in a relationship with him. The Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Remember the staff is what he uses to bring us close, and the rod is what he uses to beat off the prey? Man, that's comforting. That he has a staff that brings us in and a rod that fights off the enemy. This is the promise we have as followers of Jesus, that he is our good shepherd. And so no matter what we face in life or death, we can look to him as the one we can trust. We see here in the way Jesus deals with his disciples that he is tender and strong. We know that in him there is safety and comfort, hope and joy, protection and refuge. So we see the heart of the shepherd who has compassion for the lost sheep and kind care for those who are already in his fold. And so this morning as we go out, I would encourage you to have the heart of our shepherd, our good shepherd. Compassion for the lost, but also a heart that trusts him and his care for us. We'll close with Isaiah 40, starting in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Do you see that strong image of God? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them close to his chest. He will gently lead those who are with young. Praise God for our compassionate shepherd who seeks the lost and cares for his sheep.